Uh, welcome to New Vintage. This is, if this is your first time, we're particularly glad you're here. If you're joining us online or on the rooftop, uh, God bless you as well. We're going to be looking today at the life of David. And yes, I said the whole life of David. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover. Normally I would do the life of David at like 10 weeks. Uh, and today we're going to look uh, at kind of some snippets of the life of David because it's easy for us to, uh, given all the different walks of life that people who uh, are going to hear what what I say today will, based on where you're coming from, what your experiences are, what you're going through in life, you may hear it a little bit differently. I mean, I were at a pastor's conference and we went and we would hear these sessions and then we'd all get in a round table and discuss what we heard. And it was amazing to me how a group of preachers uh, could sit there and hear completely different things, even though they all heard the same session. And sermons are a little bit like that. In fact, uh, William Willowin, one of my favorite uh, preachers, uh, likens preaching to like having empty milk bottles out there and grabbing a big uh, bucket of milk and throwing it into the crowd. And it's going to land in some and it's going to splash halfway into others and over on the floor. So we're going to try something a little different today. Instead of giving you one piece that everybody hears, I'm going to give you a lot of pieces. And so instead of us being this group of people who uh, all hear one thing and hear it from different perspectives, I'm going to give you several different things. And my hope is that in the life of David, you're going to find your, your connection point. And if not, along the way, you're going to realize that there are different times that God gives us different things. But God gives us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. Um, David, where to even begin with him? Well, we're going to begin uh, where most of us are familiar with the life of David. First Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. Uh, this will be one of four kind of scenes we're going to check out today. Most people know two things about David. He killed Goliath and he slept with Bathsheba. Those are the two things he's known for. There's so much more to David than that. Um, and today we're going to begin with the story of David and Goliath, but really as a way of setting up what happens and the significance of that event throughout the rest of the life of David. David, as a boy, the prophet Samuel, there's no, you don't text ahead or anything in the ancient world. If you're going to go to somebody's house, you just show up. So the prophet Samuel, who the one responsible for anointing kings and things like that, did that. He just knocks on Jesse's door and says, hi, I've been appointed. One of your sons is about to be the next king of Israel. So Jesse lines up all of his sons. Samuel goes, he sees the big oldest son, big strapping lad, good looking, looks the part. He starts walking over to anoint him. God says, no, not him. And so he keeps working his way down the line of Jesse's sons. None of them fit what God is telling him. And so he goes, do you have any other sons? And he goes, well, yeah, I got one. A uh, little dude, uh, but he's out, he's out in the field, and he says, well, call for him. So he brings him in, and there's David. God says to him, that's the one. Now, you can imagine being one of his older brothers. The pipsqueak gets anointed king. Says he's very young, probably a young teenager when this happens. I mean, this is, this is very strange, you have to imagine. Uh, I've always pictured David, he's, he's referred to as handsome and all these things. I picture him like... Justin Bieber at the beginning of his career, okay? He, that's who he was. He's like, boys have barely changed, uh, and he's out there, and, and a lot of other guys have questions about David's just his, uh, his toughness. He's just a little guy. He can't do anything, but he's anointed king. Fast forward. He's still young. He's still small. So when the battle comes, the Philistines, the often enemy of Israel, make war against them. All the brothers head out except David. David's kept back to watch the herds. Isn't that awful? Any of you are the youngest in the family. I was the youngest in my family. And when you get left behind because you're too young or too small or whatever, it stinks. 
Poor David, you know, he's, he's, he's got a, the heart of a warrior in him, and he wants to go to battle, but he's not. In fact, he kind of add insult to injury when eventually when David is sent to the battle with Goliath, he's going to bring refreshments to his brothers. His dad says to him, hey, David, take this bread and an assortment of 10 cheeses to your brothers. Like, you want to go to the battle? Okay. Take a charcuterie board to your brothers because they might need something. You know, and I found a, I'm like, that's, that's messed up. He's like being the water boy for the battle. He's not even allowed to go. And so the idea is you go, wave to your brothers, give them the charcuterie board, and then come back, Bieber. You know, we're going to use you out in the field. And so he goes to the battle, and when he gets there, he sees the strangest thing. He sees Saul, the big bad Saul, the one who was picked because he did kind of look the part. He's there, the military leader of all Israel, and all the troops are standing there, and they're all terrified. On the other side of the valley, you've got Goliath, nine feet tall, 125-pound coat, big bad dude. And the way they decided to do this is mano a mano, Goliath versus the best Israel has. And nobody on Israel's side will take it. Saul doesn't want to do it, so he tries bribery to get somebody to do it. He says, look, I'll tell you what, your family... They can be tax-free for life. That'd be nice. If I was, you know, somebody's dad, I might say, go, you know, get out there. But he tax-free for life. The other thing he says is, you know what, you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. And so David kind of goes down the line and keeps asking, what did he say you get in exchange for this? And he says, okay, I'm, I'll do it. Word makes its way up to Saul. David. Me and that little kid looks like Justin Bieber over there. <laughs> like, He's going to take on Goliath. I can't be Goliath. I can't, I can't be Goliath. The kid with the charcuterie board. He wants to take on Goliath. Right. So he says to do it, and, and Saul has no reason to think that he's going to win. But at least, you know, it's like throwing red meat to an animal. Right? Maybe Goliath, all right, we're going to take the L on this one, but at least it'll be over. So they take David. They try to to put him uh, in Saul's armor because he's small, it doesn't fit right. Uh, back in my, when I was playing baseball, we used to use the team's helmets. And a lot of them had been so stretched out over the years that I'd put it on my head and it would rattle around on the inside. So if, as soon as I started to run, it would fly right off. Or if I got hit in the head with something, it would really rattle because my little head was inside this big, wide helmet. That's kind of how I picture this. The armor doesn't fit right. And David says, you know what? I can't do this. Just take it off. I got, I got this. Well, what are you going to fight with? I got a slingshot. A slingshot. And you're going to be glad with a slingshot. Yeah. <laughs> All right, dude. Your loss. See you later. And so off David goes. Goliath on the other side, uttering humiliating things. Here's what David says to him. This is 1 Samuel 17, 46 to 48. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it isn't by sword or spear that the Lord saves. It's not by sword or spear. 
You might want to underline that in your Bible, your Bible app, that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you all into our hands. It isn't with the sword of the spear that the Lord saves. So if you're taking notes, write down slingshot. Not with the sword of the spear, because the battle belongs to God. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a pretty uh, well-selling book called David and Goliath. The story continues to be used to this day for inspiration for people. It was kind of like different underdog stories. But one of the things he points out in his book is that there are a lot of successful leaders, especially entrepreneurs, who uh, succeed. If you look at the successful entrepreneurs kind of throughout the world, many of them had learning disabilities. In fact, up to half of them are dyslexic. There's a story told of being in a room full of, of uh, elite businessmen and saying, okay, how many of you have a, have a learning disability? And half the hands go in the air. And so he talks about what he calls the advantage of disadvantage. That sometimes you have an advantage by being disadvantaged. You, you learn things that most people don't learn. David, other than serving a, a fierce charcuterie board, was an excellent guy defending herds. He knew how to kill things without weapons. Bears, lions, things of that nature. He's used to fighting by himself. And he's used to relying on God. So he takes his slingshot and he rounds up some rocks. Plants one right in the middle of Goliath's forehead. Down he goes. And then David comes up very casually. Takes out Goliath's sword, finishes him off, cuts off his head, and takes it as a trophy. Bieber did that. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Here he is. He's like, I got this head. And he sends it to Jerusalem, which at that time they did not have possession of yet. He sends it to Jerusalem, maybe as a message to say that God is with Israel. There's a love gift from Israel to you. He takes Goliath's sword and spear with him, puts it in his tent. So one of the things I want us to point out, okay, before we move on to the next thing, okay, because we're going to, Goliath's sword is about to make another appearance down the road, is that David doesn't see himself as somebody who wins battles based on swords and spears, but that God gives him the victory. The slingshot, if you will, is the symbol of the advantage of disadvantage. Reliance on God when all you got is a few rocks and you're facing Goliath. That God delivers Goliath into his hand because God wins battles. Fundamentally, God picks who wins battles and who loses battles. Goliath and Saul each trust in themselves. Saul will not go out to fight because he's a coward, because he's trusting in himself. And he realizes that I can't beat Goliath. You're correct, Saul. Had you relied on God, maybe God tells you how to beat Goliath, but he doesn't. Saul's full of cowardice and, as we learn right after this, jealousy and all sorts of gunk going on in here. So he relies on himself and it turns him into a coward. Goliath relies on himself and it turns him into dead. Because ultimately, God doesn't, God is the one who picks winners and losers in battle. There are cases throughout Scripture of the, this small army gaining victory over a much larger, much more well equipped army. Even our own history tells us that. That 
Battles aren't always determined by who has the best weaponry, who has the strongest fighter. We Christians always have the advantage of disadvantage. See, Goliath was, was arrogant because he trusted himself. Saul was a coward because he trusted in himself. And the, the great battles of our lives, in the same way, aren't fought with sword or spear. They're fought with trust. They're fought with obedience. They're fought with faith. And we always have this advantage of disadvantage. You know, we, we don't wear the home team jersey anymore in the country we live in. We're the visiting team now. So we get the booze. We don't get the calls. We don't get that kind of stuff anymore. So we can make a decision either to pout because we're no longer the home team, or we can go ahead and say, it's been rare throughout history that Christians have ever had the advantage of advantage. We've always had the advantage of disadvantage. Being the boys crying in the wilderness, being this kind of ragamuffin band of people out there just simply living out the gospel and trusting in God to provide the victories over the Goliaths of the world. We may often be the underdog in a lot of different fights, but we will be victorious because battles of the spirit are not won with the sword or the spear or power or money or influence. They're won by the power of God who gave David the victory that day. So if you're facing a Goliath, don't reach for the sword. Reach for the hand of Almighty God. It looks like a slingshot. Listen to him. Trust him. He'll tell you how to fight. He'll give you the victory. The advantage of our disadvantage is that we know how battles are won. Now, David said that the battle wasn't going to be won with sword and spear, and that's true. He wins with a the, with the slingshot. And then, irony of ironies, he takes Goliath's sword with him. Fast forward some length of time. David's victory over Goliath doesn't make Saul as happy as you would think. He doesn't say, thank you, David, for, for getting us out of that one and giving us the victory over the Philistines. What ends up happening is the people fall in love with David. And so they come up with this little jingle. Saul killed his thousands. David kills his tens of thousands. It's a way of saying David is greater than Saul. And they sing it, and that little jingle makes multiple appearances in different places, different lengths of time. So you know this has become a thing. It's a song. It's a jingle. It doesn't happen once and Saul gets mad. So Saul begins to get extremely, extremely jealous of David to the point that he decides he's going to take his life. It, David's victory over Goliath produces a murderous jealousy in King Saul. So repeatedly, David is on the run. If you want to know where a lot of the Psalms are written, it's on the run. So if you feel like you're being pursued by your enemies, let me suggest something to you. Pray on the run. Pray on the run. Worship on the run. Many of the songs that we sing, many of the Psalms that are written in Scripture, Psalm 52, for instance, they're written on the run. When he's hiding from his enemies, he's being chased. When he feels like the whole world has turned against him, that's what it's like when he flees to a little city called Nob, N-O-B. Saul is chasing him down, trying to kill him. This is a city where at least some tabernacle is, and there he goes in to see a priest by the name of Ahimelech. He goes in, and Ahimelech looks at David, and he notices something's wrong. He looks disheveled. He's by himself. That's very rare for somebody with David's military standing to not have a battalion behind him. He's by himself. I imagine he, he doesn't look particularly good because he's been on the run for a while. But he goes to this little city called Nob, only three miles away from where Saul tried to kill him last. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's in imminent danger. He's desperate. So he goes to the priest, Ahimelech, and asks for help, but he doesn't tell him the truth. 
takes creative license with the situation. He says, yeah, uh, sorry about that. The king sent me on an urgent mission. Uh, and so I had to go alone. So that's why I'm by myself. And so he says, I'm starving. Do you have any food? And he says, well, I've got some bread, but that's the leftover sacred bread. That's only for priests. And the priest makes the right decision, which is in the kind of theological realm, human need is greater than the other. So he decides he'll share it with David. David says, great. And he starts chowing down or whatever. And then David goes, do you have a weapon? And he goes, well, yeah, actually we do. The sword of Goliath that you killed. It's right over there. Would you like it? Yeah. David says, there's no sword like it. There's no sword like it. So David takes the sword of Goliath with him. Here's how it reads in 1 Samuel 21, 8 and 9. David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want to take it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. And David says, there's none like it. Give it to me. So sometimes God provides the slingshot. Sometimes he provides the sword. But the sword is not just the sword, right? It could have been any other sword. I think there's some reason. Now, part of the reason that, that it is where it is, it happens to be here next to the priest, is because at some point, David took it from his tent and must have dedicated it to God. And because he does, it's actually there waiting for him when he actually needs it. And it's a reminder of how God had given him victory in the past. There are some of you sitting here today who I guarantee you could use a victory. You've been on the run for a long time, and the best thing that could happen to you is to have a reminder of all the ways that God's already delivered you in the past. See, what he does here, oh, Goliath, I remember that. David must have thought to himself, yeah, I was just a little pipsqueak then. Feels like all I do is run now. Feels like all I do is get chased now. It feels like everybody in the world is against me now. Goliath. Thank you, Lord. You delivered me there. Now, you may remember back in the story when he's facing Goliath, the reason that he gives Goliath or why he's going to whoop up on him is, you know what? God has delivered me from the lion and the bear, and he's going to deliver me from you too. Now, he gets another a reminder. Just to, so he uses his memory there, and now he's given Goliath's sword, and it reminds him of the previous victory that, he's, that, he, that he had. It's a sword, but it's a lot more than a sword. It's a symbol of God's faithfulness to him in the past as a way of helping him achieve present victory. The same sword that David used to protect Israel for Saul is now available to protect Israel from Saul. Our courage, sisters and brothers, is rooted in God's prior work in our lives. David remembers when God delivered him from the lion and the bear. And now Goliath and his victory there in the Valley of Elah, that is brought to mind. One of the most faith-building things that you can possibly do is to spend time meditating on what God has already done in your life. There's a whole canon of psalms. Like within the 150 psalms, there's a chunk of psalms that really read like a history book. They just recount all the different things that God did for Israel. Praise be to God. 
who did this? His love endures forever. Praise God, who did this? For his steadfast love endures forever. Praise the God who did this. His love endures forever. All those, all those things are, in a way, swords. They're Goliath swords. Ways that Israel looks back and they say to themselves, you know what, God delivered me then. I have every reason to believe he can do it again. Now, if you're a first-time battle person, the slingshot might be where you need to go. But if you've been in this a while, and you've experienced the deliverance of God before, sometimes God will provide you a sword. It gives us a chance to remember when God turned our mourning into dancing, when God forgave our sin, when God gave us victory in this particular thing. I, I do this sometimes even church-wise. I'll, I'll, when I get down about things or whatever, I go back and I look and remember things that God has done, great works of God in our church. And it reminds me, you know, God has delivered us this far. Why wouldn't he keep going? Like, he's got the track record. And Israel always struggled with their memory, which I think is why God commanded them to observe these festivals, like the Passover and Purim and the Feast of the Tabernacles and all these other feasts that they were given. They were, they were meant to call to mind all the ways that God had delivered them in the past as a way of keeping their hearts right toward him. Scene three. David continues to run from Saul. He's given the chance to take Saul out one night. He passes on it because he knows that Saul is still God's anointed king, and he's not going to lift a sword against Saul, even though Saul is lifting a sword against him. He continues to run. Eventually, Saul dies. David is anointed king. But the challenges don't stop there. David sins with Bathsheba. Adultery, murder. What he needs then is a prophet. He's going on with his life like it never happened. What he needs is God to send somebody into his life who will tell him the truth. When he needed a friend, God gave him Jonathan earlier, Saul's son. He needed a friend, somebody to keep his life alive, actually, just to help him dodge Saul. Somebody who was aiding and abetting him as he was fleeing. Somebody who was close to him like a brother. When he needed Jonathan, God gave him Jonathan. Now, he doesn't need a Jonathan, he needs a Nathan. God gives him Nathan. He comes to him and says, David, what in the world did you do? Sometimes God sends just the right person to say just the right thing, to give us a true word, when what we seek is a justifying word, we get truth instead. Some of us may need a prophet. Some of us may need a friend. Then in 2 Samuel 24, this is not as well known of a story, but it's important, very important. 2 Samuel 24, David sins again, not adultery this time. It's having a census taken, which was forbidden at the time. And if one was taken, then there were certain uh, laws that went alongside that, and they weren't done properly. And it says that Satan kind of initiated David to want to do this. So he takes this census, and he goes around, and he does this. In fact, Joab, who was basically just kind of like this meathead guy next to David who went around killing people, he was his heavy. When David goes and says, hey, I want you to go take a census, Joab kind of looks at him and says, you sure you want to do that, boss? He's like, yep. And says, okay, we'll, we'll do it. So he does it, but then almost immediately David has regret. 
Now, regardless of why it seemed to be such an egregious sin in the eyes of God, it was. David knew it. And so God comes to David and says, look, I'm going to give you your choice of punishment. Did your parents ever do that? <laughs> okay, you can get a spanking. You can be grounded for a week or go without dinner, right? Um, it's kind of one of those three. Um, and here, David is given a choice. You can have three years of famine in the land. You can have to flee from your enemies and be on the run for three months. Or you can have pestilence break out in the city for three days. David says something so powerful here. He says, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But don't let me fall into human hands. So even though God's the one that's punishing him, he goes, look, I'll take pestilence because that's one that's in God's hands. I don't want to be in the hands of humans. I want to be in God's hands because God's mercy is great. So we'll trust you. He chooses pestilence. So God sends an angel who pummels the land with pestilence. And God eventually, after three days, many, many end up dead. God tells the angel to stop right as he's near the threshing floor of Aruna. Gad, the prophet, goes to David and says, okay, the angel halted right there up on that threshing floor of Aruna. Why don't you go build an altar there? So David goes. He goes to Aruna. I imagine knocks on the door. Kunk, 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 kunk. David's king at this point, remember. And he says, hi, Aruna, it's David. I know who you are. Okay. Um, I'd like to build an altar here on your threshing floor. I'd like to buy your threshing floor from you. Why? So I can build an altar to the Lord. Because this is where he stopped punishing the city. And Aruna goes, well, take it. I'll just give it to you. In fact, uh, if you need to build an altar, here's all the supplies. You can have as many, as much of that as you want. And uh, you're going to need some oxen. You've got plenty of oxen. I'll give you those too. It's all yours. Now this is the point at which somebody like me, I would have said, Cool. The Lord provides. Here's what David says. The king replied to Arauna. No, this is 2 Samuel 24, 24, and 25. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there, and he sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. Did you catch that, though? See, if, if, if I was back there, I would not be asking for an altar. I would want healing, rehab for the nation. I would ask for something else. And instead, the prophet comes to David and says, what you need to do is build an altar. Offer sacrifices to God. And when it's offered to be given to him, he turns it down and he says something. Boy, every, every person within earshot of this needs to get. I will not sacrifice to God something that costs me nothing. When was the last time 
that you sacrifice something to God that actually cost you something. I mean, where you really had to sacrifice. And you said, I know this is going to cost me a lot, but it's the right thing to do. It would make God happy and pleased, so I'm going to do it. You know, there are three chairs, a friend of mine says. First chair is, I don't know God and I don't live for God. Second chair is, I've confessed God, but I still live for myself. And the third chair is, I've confessed God and I live for him. I think it's amazing how many of us stay in chair two. I still pretty much live for myself. But I say lots of good things. I share religious tweets. I do, you know, that's my sacrifice, letting people know I'm a Christian. You know, I mean, I, I you know, I give money to the church, do you? Most of us don't tithe even, and tithing probably wouldn't be much of a sacrifice for most of us. It really wouldn't. We'd say it would. But, it, you know, it might cost us our season tickets or something. But really, that's not a sacrifice. I'm, I'm talking about something costly. Something you don't want to give up. Something that it would take a whole legion of demons to pry from your hand. <laughs> something costly. Sometimes I think what we need isn't a weapon of victory. What we need is an altar to sacrifice on. And so David here, the king, the king, says, I will not sacrifice something to God that doesn't cost me anything. And when I hear that, I mean, I try to think about my typical response to adversity. What we often do now is we go, God, why is this happening to me? If there was a God, how could this be happening to me? When God has full knowledge of why it's happening to us. And rather than go with humility and say, God, we're going to pour ourselves out for you. That even though I can feel the tug of adversity trying to move me from chair three to chair two, maybe even chair one. I'm going to lay my life on the altar again. I mean, that's what Romans 12 tells us to do. We are living sacrifices. And so I do the things that, that cost me. That's what a sacrifice is. You know, if I, if, if one of you guys asked me for, I mean, I'll just go back to when I was dating my wife. If I bought her the cheapest engagement ring I could find, because that gets the job done, I'm sure she would have been thrilled. Part of what makes it special is the fact that in order for me to buy that little engagement ring for, I had to like, I was making like $500 a month. I had a Discover card with like a $300 limit on it. And I take that thing down, I'm like, max it out. You know, here's every dollar I've got in this world. And I still had to put the thing on layaway, I think it was, layaway or credit or something, because I couldn't get it right away. 
But what makes it special is that it costs something. If the whole Christianity thing has never meant much to you, let me suggest the altar for you. Well, no, 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 how do I know? Because then if I lay everything on the altar and I still don't like it, well, that start right there. Take that attitude and lay that on the altar. It really isn't about you at all. It's about God in heaven, the God who's given you victory after victory after victory, the God who stands to give you victories in the future, the God who gave David, for instance, victory over Goliath, kept him alive when Saul sought his life. All of that stuff gave him a friend when he needed it, a prophet when he needed it, forgave his sin with Bathsheba, leads him all the way to this point right here, that God, he's the point. And so we don't need a slingshot, we don't need a sword sometimes, what we need is an altar to sacrifice on. Say, God, I'm taking this habit that's held me captive for, for 20 years, and I'm laying it out there, it's yours. I'm taking my selfishness, I'm taking this, because this is going to hurt. This one's going to hurt, God, not going to lie. But that screeching, that tug, as soon as you know how hard it is to give it up, that tells you what a hold it's got on you. Sometimes we've got a bunch of people going to the beach to get baptized today. That's an altar. It's a way in which a person lays their life down for Jesus, who laid his life down for them. And so that image of putting somebody under the water, that's a burial. Pulling them up, that's a resurrection. Old self, old habits, old ways, old attitudes, selfishness, all the stuff, all the junk, that's dead. It's on the altar, sacrificed. And then here they come, up, empty tomb, new life. Person who goes to get baptized, and, choose, and, and says and knows that they plan to sit in chair two ought not to get baptized. That is a third chair decision. That is when I say to myself, I mean, when people say, you know, are there a real Christian? No, there's Christians or not Christians. There's really not like, okay, he's a four-star general of Christians. This guy's a private over here, a corporal. It's not how it works. You're either for me or you're against me. You gather to me or you scatter abroad, Jesus said. Because you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, he says. And what I love about David and what, what I want to bring to work on my own life, and I hope you'll find one of these scenes, might be where you're at right now, is I want to take that attitude that David has that simply trust God whatever happens. And whenever I'm, I fall into sin or whatever the way that David did repeatedly. I mean, he, he sins. He's a pretty prolific sinner. He goes way beyond Bathsheba. That's, like, that's the only time that thing really happens to him. But the rest of the time, he's messing around, doing all sorts of things that kind of bring, make God unhappy. But when he realizes he's doing it, he stops. And his heart is broken over it. And he takes himself immediately, whatever he has to do, takes himself right back to the altar and lays back on it again. And that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. And when we do, God always provides the victory. Because ultimately, that is the victory. Full devotion to God, that's the victory. 1463. 
was the year. City Council of Florence decides they need a monument. They want to enhance their city. They commission a sculptor to carve this giant statue to stand in front of City Hall. Somebody suggests a, a biblical character. So the guy goes to this mine and he takes this piece of marble out, but he cuts it wrong. It's too thin. So it breaks easily. So he sets it aside. Forty years go by. The marble's still sitting over there. No statue made. And they turn to a local sculptor. Michelangelo. Michelangelo's his name. Buonarroti. That's a good Italian last name. 26. Almost a beaver himself. <laughs> Filled with energy, skill, and imagination. He locks himself in the workshop for three years. And he picks David. And out of a piece of broken marble, he crafts this masterpiece. And now eight million people a year go to see this thing. It was, you know, it took 49 men five days to get it from where he was doing it and sculpting it to where its resting place is now. 14 feet tall. And it's a statue of David relaxing, basically, after he beats Goliath. He's got a slingshot over his shoulder. It almost looks like a sport coat if you're on a business trip. You just got to hang it over there like this. But it became this fixture of what it means to obtain the victory. And people go and they look at it. But I love that he crafted it out of broken marble. I think that's cool, that nobody else wanted just like God took this little shepherd boy who was good for charcuterie plates and turns him into the man who beats Goliath, becomes the king, and becomes one who through his lineage comes somebody known as the son of David, Jesus Christ, the one who knew the altar better than anybody, who becomes the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world, who continues to fashion masterpieces out of broken marble. That's who we worship. So we get to move on to his life next week. Jesus Christ, the son of David. But right now, we're going to gather around the Lord's table. Uh, we're going to take what's called communion. We do this every week here at New Vintage. And as we do today, we want to remember Jesus the son of David. You'll see, uh, you should have gotten a little bag with bread and cup on the inside. And my hope is, if you didn't get one and you would like one, you can just put your hand in the air and we will bring one to you. No shame in that game. Just go ahead and hold it up and we'll, we'll, we have ushers that will bring you one. Slingshot. The advantage of disadvantage. The sword. The reminder of God's victories in your life. The altar, the symbol of sacrifice. Which of those do you need today? Do you need, do you need to be more dependent on God? Do you need to be reminded of how he's delivered you in the past? Do you need to offer God something that is costly? That doesn't cost you nothing.
Which of those three? Maybe all three. But pick one. And as we pray, offer your thoughts and your prayers to God about, based on these stories, what, what you'd like to see him do in your life. Offer him a sacrifice this morning.